Hello everyone and welcome to Blacksiders. I'm Gemma McKinnon. And I'm Peter McGillivray. And this is the show where we talk about news and current affairs that we feel like talking about. How's it going, Pete? What's been up lately? I'm well, thanks, Gem. I am feeling really good, generally. I mean, I'm just loving doing Blacksiders and getting really excited about our yarns. I planted a tree yesterday in my front yard and I said to my husband, this is a celebrity tree now. The host of Blacksiders planted this tree. (laughs) I love it. I mean, I have been a bit shy telling people about Blacksiders, but I'm going to start getting the world out there. And I'd really love if our listeners could maybe, you know, talk up our show a little bit. Spread the word. Spread the word. And using our Instagram account a bit more, I reckon. I think we want to get some followers there. And, I, you know, I was thinking today, also send us some questions, some topics that you'd like us to explore. Um, for all those non-First Nations people out there listening, what do you want to know? Especially if you have a question where you think, oh, this is an issue that I experience and have opinions on, but I wonder what Gemma and Peter think about this. I think people think that all the time, surely. Absolutely. Hit us up. DM us. DM on the IG. On the IG. Our Instagram handle is Blacksiders. B-L-A-K-S-I-D-E-R-S. Do you want to find us? No C. No C. Mm. Pete will explain why we don't use the C. At yeah. some point, yeah. I mean, I think we've we've got so we've we've got a special series that we're planning on black politics. So I think that expression of black, spelt with a K, is definitely something we want to really get into the history of. I think it's going to help for sure. Today, I'm super excited about today's show. Today, we're going to yarn about news items that caught our attention this week. And we're going to start with the first review of the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. The Productivity Commission has found that it's unclear how much funding states and territories have allocated to Aboriginal-controlled organisations. Commissioner Natalie Siegel-Brown found state and federal government's engagement with Indigenous communities was, air quotes, tokenistic, and stated that if governments continue to put money towards programs that don't align with what the community is saying will work, then governments will continue to allocate public money ineffectively. Pete, on a scale of 1 to 10, how over this are you? Pretty over it, I have to say, especially... Well, let me back up a bit, Gem. I just want to give a little bit of background to the Closing the Gap program of work. I think that's really useful to, you know, share some of that history of how the Closing the Gap agreement came to be. And it basically grew out of at around in around 2005, so towards the end of the Howard government's, the Commonwealth um, government's time in power, it was a public campaign around closing the gap on the life expectancy between Indigenous Australians and the broader Australian public. And that, it was, I think it was the, actually I know it was, it was Tom Karma in he, when he was Torres Strait, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. He, in his annual report, talked about the life expectancy gap. 
So that era of campaigning that went from about 2005 to 2007, it was just before um, the Commonwealth government created this national agreement to do something about closing the life expectancy gap. What also happened in that time is that it became very much focused on as a health campaign. So it was about dealing with the disproportionate uh, measures of social disadvantage, particularly around health for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that was, you know, largely because in Australia, many people might not know this, but we have a really strong national network of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health organisations. So for a good three decades now, there's been lots of uh, work that's been done directly by Indigenous people in health. So it was this kind of very easy to get this health focus at a Commonwealth level. And so the the Australian government went ahead and made all of these commitments to address this difference uh, in in health equity in the form of the national agreement. So that was in 2007. Every year, uh, well, the agreements tend to be about five to 10 years in length. And so we've had subsequent agreements now under different governments. But of course, we've yet to see uh, the improvements on the measures or the outcomes that are committed to in and the agreements. And it seems a bit like the, um, the targets that they set in these in subsequent agreements tend to uh, be a little less ambitious every time yes because they're the if you uh, have a look at the closing the gap uh, reports report card I think they call it mm-hmm. uh, not doing so well in most of the target areas. That is correct. And the difference between, though, the closing a gap agreement that all Australian governments, both the Commonwealth, state and territory governments, they're all signatories to this agreement. They've all committed to the outcomes in in the agreement. The difference with this one, which was signed in 2018, is that there are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community organisations that are partners to this agreement now for the first time. So it's always been an entirely government-led agreement. It's about what governments do to address these issues. But this time we have the accountability that comes from Aboriginal organisations, Torres Strait Islander organisations at the table in it. And I think that's why we're starting to see a lot more scrutiny in governments being held to account in the most recent week of uh, reporting on the closing the gap. Very interesting, I think, to see the Productivity Commission actually calling out um, the fact that if you're not listening to what Aboriginal communities are telling you is going to work, you're basically throwing your money down the drain. Absolutely. And one of the things that I find most interesting about using the Productivity Commission as a mechanism to evaluate the progress of the Closing the Gap Agreement is that it was actually Josh Frydenberg who gave the power to the Productivity Commission to evaluate the progress. So that's a really interesting, I mean, putting the fact that it was the Treasurer aside, but it does go to show how these questions of how what policy is being resourced and the outcomes that you see from that resourcing, uh, what the different interests are to measure success. And I think in this situation, this, this, the Productivity Commission is just another Commonwealth agency that's come out with the evidence that if you're not letting Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and communities lead this work and government work differently with communities to get these outcomes, then nothing changes. 
have you seen any what what would you say are some successes that you notice day to day or that you notice in your work that come out of the closing the gap initiative i think the the most exciting potential and i don't know if i would say successes yet but the potential is the working with in a shared decision making process Aboriginal community controlled organisations and governments building the mechanisms and the processes to do that for the first time and what I would say about the critique that's coming and the news that's coming and the the findings of this evaluation process by the Productivity Commission is that this is an opportunity to say okay some things are not working there are clear uh, blockages in the way that governments are expected to work or the way that they're not taking enough action. They're not being ambitious enough. They're not being hashtag brave enough to actually affect change. Now is the time to say we need to go harder. I think one of the things that really gets into the in the way of uh, these you know, agreements and the calls that they make for change is the political reality in each state and territory government that much of the policy areas which the Closing the Gap Agreement deals with, housing, criminal justice system, early childhood, education, health, these are state and territory policy areas. These are areas which state and territory governments are responsible for legislating. And the Commonwealth is there trying to take a leadership role you know, helping states, persuading states, working with states to do more in these policy areas and these legal areas, but they don't actually hold the power. Which is super interesting too, because when you think about politics, when you think about what we see um, in the media, when you think about politicians that talk about First Nations issues, First Nations people, you automatically think about federal politicians, federal governments. But as you said, it's actually the state governments that we need that action from. And most state governments tend to be largely silent on First Nations issues. Because to affect change in the areas, in the social areas and in the areas of law and policy that impact us requires change in the systems that impact everybody. So the reform is actually needed on a structural level. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people find ourselves impacted by the laws and policies that that apply to everyone for us much, much more worse and more seriously because you know, our communities are experiencing social disadvantage at much, much worse rates. But Politicians at the state and territory level are trying to win everyone's vote, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's votes. Mm. And the, poli- the, the political reality is where we lose in our attempts to get the reform of the systems to work better for us. Yeah, if only we had an advisory body of some if kind only. Oh, man. that could I mean, provide some guidance to governments yeah. on how to tackle these issues. Yeah, especially those opportunities to, you know, be having policy conversations which where we don't need to change the whole system but just have it work best for us because we're the only ones impacted by mm. them. Mm. Oh, well, um, next, Nova Paris has launched a campaign to reclaim the Aboriginal flag from the war in Gaza, arguing that Indigenous symbols and chants have been misappropriated at pro-Palestine rallies. She has said that she is worried that Indigenous activists could be seen to be turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism. What do you think about this, Pete? Uh, perhaps I'll start with the question, can blackfellas misuse the flag? 
No. I don't think that we can misuse our own flag. I mean, this is... When I think about the campaign to free the flag, I guess this is where people... Which Nova Paris was a big backer of, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the freeing the flag resulted in the Commonwealth acquiring rights to the flag to use it. Yeah. And lots of people at the time, blackfellas at the time, said this is a this is a step backwards. They they said the argument was that giving the flag to the Commonwealth to tell us how we use our flag is definitely not what we want. And I feel like this is a bit like that. This is a bit of a um, we will one person will determine how the flag is used and that's not the spirit of the flag that's not how we anybody has ever thought about the flag i mean it's a land rights flag for starters that it's its origin story is was in the land rights movement so in i see it as being very much used in the context of it's i did sort of think about this probably for longer than i should have yeah as to whether or not first nations people can misappropriate the flag and and I thought and thought and thought and thought and I couldn't think of an example um, where one person would be able to dictate how a First Nations person uses the flag and I'm assuming based on how many blackfellas are out at these pro-Palestine rallies that it is blackfellas using the flag I hope. I uh, think so. Yeah. I mean I think that you know uh, yeah, I can't think of an example unless there was. I mean, I'm even thinking about um, some of the um, anti-lockdown rallies, and like there were lots of blackfellas who um, were against the vaccination and against the lockdowns. And I don't remember the flag being used in that way. But even if it ever was, I don't know if we would. I mean, I understand that. There are lots of blackfellas who have a view about government intervention into um, people's lives as being a problem and that being a lived experience that people have a memory of. Um, but no, I can't. I can't think of a, an example. I think, do you do you think that perhaps she's misunder... And, and I should say, Nova Paris is not alone in this call-out. There are people who, um, I guess, have said that they don't necessarily think that First Nations people in Australia should be um, so perhaps, you know, in their perception, blindly um, supporting uh, the Palestinian movement and and speaking out about um, the war in Gaza. Do you think that perhaps she's misunderstanding the... um, you know, that that solidarity or that affinity that First Nations people have with the people of Palestine. I think that Nova has found the thing that she can use to access the debate being the flag. I think that she knows how to talk about the flag because she was key to air quotes, freeing the flag. Um, but I, I, I have a problem with the insinuation that any black fella who um, is engaging in this debate isn't doing so knowingly and being informed of the issues and very clear in their solidarity with Palestinian people on the basis of uh, humanity and or our shared experiences of 
colonization. It's a bit condescending, isn't it? Because it does say that uh, the people that are out getting involved in these rallies on a weekly basis are unaware perhaps of Un- unthinking and sheep just blindly following just jumping on a bandwagon that might have them perceived as anti-semitic yeah agreed and i'm just not really i i think that it it's not a statement it's not an informed statement it's not it's not informed by the debate or the context or mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's not really a statement that indicates that she's particularly informed about what the people involved in these protests are trying to say um or you know that she or indicates that she's really understands the depth of this level of solidarity actually what are we talking about here and why is it that first nations people are so um passionate about this we've had this conversation and i've sort of talked about the interesting it's you know phenomenon that occurs when we have these international um international events or international movements think black lives matter where first nations people in australia really like jump on to these and see them as a really great opportunity for us to then talk about because suddenly the rest of the country is interested suddenly the rest of the country is paying attention to what's happening it's in mainstream media it makes complete sense to me that our community sees that happening and jumps onto it and says okay people are paying attention now let's wave let's wave the flag around and help people see the commonalities between what is happening in America in the Middle East and what's happening here and actually try to make use of the opportunity that's being provided to them. Do you think that's being lost or do you think people actually see what's trying to be done here? I think that there are solidarity for me it's a key question about solidarity and historical solidarity and the and the histories and the legacy of doing work in solidarity and coming together to protest and bring attention to international injustices and blackfellas have been leading and joining with their international communities of indigenous people um, and oppressed people globally for decades and decades and decades and in terms of the solidarity movement with Palestinian people Chelsea Wadigo was quoted in the media this week um, talking about exactly that history and there are also solidarities um, in so many other communities and movements and I think the idea that blackfellas and the flag can only belong to one any movement um, is just I, I just have a problem with that and there needs to be um, some I think consideration and care when um, advocates who are so used to uh, you know working at a level of advocacy getting thinking that they can say who the flag belongs to and how it should be used absolutely and I think you know belittling the the community belittling activists and 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 very politically active people is is a very interesting well move, I think, you I th- know I think it's also reckless I think that you know at the 
Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, because we've had to use these systems and appoint advocates and leaders to speak on our issues at a national level, I think some leaders don't take enough care to actually consider and take seriously their accountabilities and their responsibilities to say the things that they say. And I would ask Nova to actually get on the streets and talk to some of the blackfellas who are joining these movements and are participating and bringing their voice to these issues and actually speak to them because I'm not sure there's no evidence in the comments made by Nova that she does have a an appropriate handle and understanding of the debate that's being had um, on these issues and when she does I think then she'd be a, but more effective at trying to make the arguments that she's making. That's right. If you're going to be a spokesperson for the community, you need to have some level of accountability to the community. Correct. Moving on, The Guardian has published an investigative series on homelessness this week called Out in the Cold. In an attempt to shine light on a crisis, Guardian Australia has spent 12 months identifying and investigating 627 homelessness deaths. The investigation involved analysis of more than a decade of non-public death reports to state and territory coroners, a review of inquest findings since 2010, and dozens of interviews with rough sleepers, victims' families, researchers and advocates. Advocates. The Guardian has found that people experiencing homelessness are dying at an average age of 44. That is vastly premature and a life expectancy gap of more than three decades. Census data says that 20% of homeless people in Australia are Aboriginal uh, or Torres Strait Islander. So again, we find ourselves talking about disproportionate representation of First Nations people in an area that is found to be systemically mismanaged. There is a Venn diagram with dozens of circles and us smack bang in the middle of it. I I was talking to a friend about this this morning and you just, you know, we were talking about child protection. We talk about housing. We talk about health. We talk about all of the closing the gap um, areas that we were talking about earlier. Consistently, a lack of government action, a lack of effective policies and and us constantly being the, the group of people that are overrepresented in those areas. I mean, we were talking today about about uh, child protection, and I was using saying Aboriginal child removal, Aboriginal child removal. Um, when of course I was talking about the child protection system in general, but it's not. It's almost not incorrect to just always think about it as Aboriginal child removal. We're so overrepresented in these spaces. I, I, you know, with not wanting to quote Michael Jackson, but all I want to say is that they don't really care about us. <laughs> I am, am I tripping, or like, am I being unfair in connecting these dots, um, or or is this just a product of institutionalized racism that that governs this country? I mean, it it's it is institutionalized racism, and it's combined with the slow but steady erosion of the community's capacity to actually care and think that we as a society have a responsibility to 
care about people who experience social disadvantage. I mean, the reason why this story was so significant for me this week is that it tells the whole the holistic story of social disadvantage in Australia and that across every measure we can see in this story how systemic um, and how we have institutionalised the broad not giving a shit about people who are experiencing poverty in this country, young people, young people who have so much to, um, you know, give to society in their families, in their communities, who we just completely give up on and decide we don't give a shit about this. And it is the case that I see this very much an indictment not only on the community at large, but also for me... um, the the yeah communities everywhere i just think this is such a, a tragic story of how we have absolutely failed in calling ourselves a civilized society and outrageous too that it's a, a, a media outlet that's spending a 12 months looking at this work because the government is not looking into this yeah um And also what I was really, I mean, I'm always really interested to see how uh, Indigenous justice issues are shaped and advocated for um, in our community in speaking to government and speaking to civil society and saying, you should care about this. We are dying in police cells. We are dying in prisons. We are dying in hospital waiting rooms. We're dying in hospital gowns at the back of hospitals because you kick us out without anywhere to go. And then you have these stories which are about people in the whole system is broken. Everybody's dying that way, but they're not actually kind of spoken about or characterised in that way. There's this kind of more palatable kind of expression of the problem. Um, And I just think that, but it's the same problem. It's the same problem for everyone. Um, And I think that there is a real need to mobilise something serious out of this story. I certainly hope that people are paying attention and there's a lot of articles in there and a lot of links to then, like you said, other areas, um, particularly state government uh, areas that need a lot of work because their failures are leading to this homelessness crisis as well. You're listening to Blacksiders and... Today we've been talking a bit about news and current affairs, but heading online now, can we talk about Reddit? I know we, we talk about social media every week, but Reddit is something that I don't think we've really touched on a lot. It is a community that I'd say I'm not certainly not a participant of, but definitely a, an observer, a Reddit voyeur. Mm-hmm. Um, and I benefit a lot from Reddit in the same way that I benefit from my beloved uh, local Facebook groups. Do you Reddit? Is that how you say it? And 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 what aspects of your life would you say um, that you rely on Reddit? That is getting advice from strangers on the internet for. What do you? What areas in your life do you trust the people on Reddit? Um, with more than you would, I don't know, a book, say. Okay, yeah, so I don't Reddit. I haven't ever, I don't have a Reddit account. Um, I only use Reddit through the web browser function. Um, It is the one social media, in air quotes, um, platform that I haven't ever really engaged in ever. Um, But I've always kind of had a wary eye on Reddit. I've just felt like it's a bit too kind of dark webby for me. That's the... (laughs) 
that's the impression that I get. And my partner is has rehabbed himself from Reddit. So he was a really kind of Gen X um, I bet, user. I bet he was. Yeah. I feel like Reddit is, if you were in a lot of fan forums as yes. a teenager, then you read it. Then you read it. And that is the one and only time that I've used Reddit is to... TV theories, like TV show theories where, like, kind of spooky shows where there's people have ideas about where the plot's going. Yeah. So, True Detective. I used to love going on Reddit to kind of get ideas of what people thought was happening in True Detective plots. But that's the only time that I've ever used it. I use it constantly. If I'm trying to figure out what a plot, like, what brand of offset smoker is better go to reddit what are these bugs in my chicken coop there'll be a million photos of different types of bugs and or and i've also learned from reddit on two different occasions two different problems how to fix my washing machine see i use youtube for that because people i like the video i like the the visual component that's true i just i don't know i guess i trust i trust the geeks out there in reddit to have you know done all the hard work for me and to Put it on there. I don't. Maybe yeah. I'm being naive. I think you might be. No, but I, this is one where I'd love to our listeners to get in touch and let us know where they go to for the help of the internet for things. What's what's your internet source of help? Of maybe choice? we're missing something that we don't say. Whirlpool forum. What is that? Yeah. Okay. No, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's been a huge chat, but now I want to change gears a little, Gem, and just check in your thumbs up and thumbs down for this week. Maybe starting with your thumbs up. I'm gonna thumbs up Valentine's Day, and I know that's not necessarily a cool or popular opinion to have. Um, I I think I grew up being the person who was like oh, it's just a Hallmark holiday and it's made up and it's the the shop, the stores. You're a have. reformed love cynic. I am because I think holidays like Valentine's Day are really good for two things. One is that I think that it's a really good opportunity for people to um, be a bit bold and tell people how they feel if they haven't told them. I really love that idea. I fully support it. And maybe some people just need a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of a push into that space. So I think it's good for that. I also think that it's really good for long-term couples, particularly parents who may not find a lot of time for their significant other, who may not do date nights, who may have not had a conversation um alone that's not about children in a really long time if you at the very least commit to valentine's day then at least one day a year you will show some appreciation for the person that you love and maybe you know have a nice din dins or whatever i don't think it's about gifts as well that's the other thing yeah yeah yeah, maybe Hallmark or whoever have have made it something where people buy things, but you don't have to buy anything. Just like spend a bit of time together. So thumbs up, V Day. You've totally persuaded me. 
You've absolutely convinced me of this gesture. I'm I've been a been a bit of a downer on Valentine's Day, but you've heard it here tonight. Everyone has permission to uh, celebrate Valentine's Day tomorrow. I would definitely get into that. Or if you're not into it, then you should be the people who offer to babysit. Yes. That's for the a great people idea. who do want to go for dinner. That's an excellent idea. Uh, my thumbs up is a recent election in Poland where there was a massive turnout by women to oust a technocratic, autocratic elected government that had started to dismantle uh, civic institutions in Poland to basically emerge this quite uh, seriously oppressive government. And they thought that they would be re-elected again, but there was a a huge voting turnout and a lot of them were women getting out to vote. I love this. Yeah. So I that was a more huge, of this. Yeah. Well, th- this year, twenty twenty four, is a massive global test of democracy. Some really big democracies in the world are having their general elections, like the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council the elections. New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council elections. Also, India, the US, the EU, the UK, Mexico just had theirs a couple of weeks ago. They're all almost as important as the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council elections. <laughs> we have to think about which guests we're getting on for that as well. Oh. So that's my thumbs up. Jem, your thumbs down. My thumbs down is absurd dietary requirements. Um, if I'm being completely candid, to be perfectly candid, I don't like any dietary requirements. Um I don't know what happened to the days where if somebody is offering you a free meal, you just eat it, regardless of what it is. <laughs> um, and oh god, everybody's going to hate me. But if like if you're, you're going to get cancelled, if you're that serious about being paleo or whatever, just bring your own food. I don't understand why it's, it's suddenly okay. Everybody has to have their own individual um, needs catered to, especially at an event that's like. 200, 300 people are going. You're like, oh, no, I want you to make a special meal for me. But where this came from is that I recently heard a very funny story about a very specific set of dietary requirements for a wedding, which just completely threw me for a loop. Is it possible to dock somebody through their dietary requirements? Is it so specific that if that person happens to be listening to our show, they'll know that it's them? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to say so. So that's why I'm I'm not going into it. Okay. Um, but also I think where, so where we've gone to with this joke at my workplace is that now so many people have these dietary requirements that are not, I'm not talking, obviously, I'm not talking about I'm allergic to shellfish. No. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, I'm not eating bread this week, so I'm going to say that I'm gluten-free or whatever it is that now I... <laughs> You know, I don't like mushrooms, so now I write that down as a dietary requirement because it's ridiculous. My other colleague doesn't like ketchup, so we then started writing down (laughs) no mayonnaise for Sophie, no ketchup for this person, no mushrooms for Gemma, um, just because it's just become this ridiculous... It's a slippery slope. You could just start writing down, I don't like my middle child. Can someone please... (laughs) deal with that or like this is the specific dish that I want I don't need anything other than a quarter pound a meal with a chocolate shake for the drink someone bring that in so if you could have that 
at um, my seat at the wedding, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, we better not get any complaints about that, Gemma. We will definitely get complaints. People that have dietaries are really, really into them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my thumbs down. I actually have a couple, but I'm just going to stick it stick to one. Um, my thumbs down is single sex schools. I don't think that single sex schools should be a thing anymore. Uh, it's old fashioned, and there is plenty of evidence that shows that the benefits across the board for young people, especially we've been talking a lot about schools um, in the last couple of episodes and how important it is for self-expression and socialization and all of the themes that we were talking about just today. I, as a parent, gave up a really long time ago on trying to control academic achievement in my children. where I'm really focused on is turning these young people into good adults, mm-hmm. into people with a solid moral compass, with a good work ethic, with a good sense of citizenship and, and what they want to contribute to the world. Ethics. All of, right? So I think that this more sort of holistic approach to what does going to school mean is really important. And I think being able to interact um, with people across the gender spectrum is a really important skill that you should know by the time that you're 17, 18 and leaving school. It is a skill which I did not get because I went to all-girls school. And, well, you know, my 20s are just a, a school screaming example of why we shouldn't have single-sex schools um, because you need to know how to interact with everybody and you need to get that experience. Exactly, as people in their fullness of who they are, even beyond the gender binary. And I think it does, it like perpetuates this sort of, um, it can perpetuate stereotypes of of gender, right? Um, If you don't have any actual interactions Mm -hmm. with anybody, then all you have to go off is what's on television and that's not real, as we've discussed. And that's all we have time for this week. I think we're going to do this news and current affair wrap up. You know, you don't even have to listen to the news. You can just listen to us maybe once a month. Yeah. And we'll cover everything that's important. Yeah, all of the really key things on black affairs and some other stuff too because we're good like that. We'll do the hard We'll tell you what you need to know. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening and we will talk to you next week.